We are going to finish Ezekiel tonight, God willing. So we're in 45. This is yet more land grant. And what we have here is the temple district, which is outside of the temple proper, is 2,500 cubits by 20,000 cubits. If you read the Hebrew, it's 25 by 10. If you read the Septuagint, it's 25 by 20. That would be about six miles. And then that's divided up into four chunks, five chunks if you count the temple proper. You've got the temple proper, which is 500 by 500 cubits, and we've already looked at that. Then you've got a chunk which is 2,500 by 10,000 cubits, which are for the Levites. And then you've got another 2,500 by 5,000, which is for the city of Jerusalem. The Levites is further divided later on. The ones that are ministering to God, which are the sons of Zadok, have got their own little section. Little. It's a pretty fair-sized section. The rest of the Levites who are serving have their own section. They are no longer scattered throughout Israel. Then the prince, David, if we take the prince to be David, has his own section. And then the city has its own section. So the thing is chopped up, and it isn't real clear which way it's chopped. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 7. And to the prince shall belong the land on both sides of the holy district, and the property of the city alongside the holy district, and the property of the city on the west, on the east, corresponding in length to one of the tribal portions, and extending from the western to the eastern boundary of the land. It is to be his property in Israel. And my princes shall no more oppress my people, for they shall let the house of Israel have the land according to their tribes. All of the tribes go back to their original land. And by the way, this book talks about what happens to Gentiles, which is cool. And the prince, David in this case, has got his own chunk of land. So when it says, they shall no longer oppress my people, is you don't need to be greedy, prince. Thus says the Lord God, enough, O princes of Israel, put away violence and oppression, and execute justice and righteousness. Cease your evictions of my people, declares the Lord God. Remember, Ezekiel is writing to the Babylonian exile. And he's also, of course, writing to us is one of the things that has happened is the government has become corrupt and they have taken tribal lands that doesn't belong to them. Sort of like our own Supreme Court with the eminent domain decision. Another hallmark of a society that is falling into a place where God is going to get upset. Verse 10, you shall have just balances and a just ephah and a just bath. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure. Bath containing one-tenth of an omer, an ephah one-tenth of an omer. The omer shall be a standard measure. The shekel shall be 20 geras. 20 shekels plus 25 shekels plus 15 shekels shall be your mina. The omer shall be the standard measure. So everything goes off of an omer, which in this case is either a liquid measure or a dry measure. And you all know a pint's a pound the world round, right? So liquid and solid measure go that way, and there are measures of volume in both cases. Everything then goes off of the omer, so an ephah then is six gallons, and uh, an omer, as opposed to a homer, is two quarts. Verse 13, this is the offering that you shall make, one-sixth of an ephah from each omer of wheat. So a sixth of an ephah is a gallon. And as a fixed portion of oil measured in baths, one-tenth of a bath, from each core, which is six gallons. Core, like the omer, contains ten baths, and one sheep from every flock, 
of 200 from the watering places of Israel for grain offering, burnt offering, and so forth. And then all the people of the land shall be obligated to give this offering to the prince of Israel. It shall be the prince's duty to furnish the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and drink offerings at the feast, at the new moons, at the Sabbaths, all the appointed feasts of the house of Israel. He shall provide the sin offerings, the grain offerings, burnt offerings, and peace offerings to make atonement of the house of Israel. So the deal is, the nation gives these offerings to the prince for his support. The prince is then responsible for coming up with the stuff that gets offered at the temple. And you can be sure that there will be enough for the prince. In the first month on the first day of the month, you shall take a bull from the herd without blemish and purify the sanctuary. The priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering and put it on the doorpost of the temple, the four corners of the ledge of the altar, and the post of the gate of the inner court. You shall do the same on the seventh day of the month for anyone who has sinned through error or ignorance. So you shall make atonement for the temple. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, you shall celebrate the feast of Passover. For the seven days of unleavened bread shall be eaten. On that day the prince shall provide for himself and all the people of the land, a young bull for a sin offering. And on the seven days of the festival he shall provide for a bird offering to the Lord, seven young bulls, and so forth. All right, I'm not going to go through all these. There's some things I want to highlight that will take a little discussion. The gate of the inner court that faces east shall be shut on the six working days, but on the Sabbath day it shall be open, and on that day the new moon it shall be open. The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from outside and shall take a stand by the post of the gate. There's two eastern gates. You've got this gate, which is into the temple complex proper, and you've got this one, which is into the temple. It's my understanding this one is closed permanently. That's the one that the presence of the Lord comes through. And we saw that earlier on. He comes through the eastern gate, and because he came through that gate, that gate is then sealed. So when we're talking about the eastern gate, this is the one we're talking about. And what it says is, the prince shall come in by the eastern gate from the outside and shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of that gate before the Lord at the Sabbath and the new moons. So what happens is, at the Sabbath and the new moon, the prince comes here, makes his offering, leaves, the gate stays open, and the people then, for the rest of that day, can come and bow before the Lord at that gate. Verse 3, the people of the light shall bow down at the entrance of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbath and the new moons. The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish, and so forth. Verse 8, when the prince enters, he shall enter by the vestibule of the gate and he shall go out by the same way. So the prince is the only guy that actually uses this gate for anything. Just like the Lord is the only one that got to use this one. When the people of the land come before the Lord to the appointed feast, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate. And he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by way of the gate by which he entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. When they enter, the prince shall enter with them, and when they go out, he shall go out. Now, I don't have any idea what the significance of that is. The only thing that my commentary says is basically it's traffic control. If you come in this way, you just keep right on trucking and go on out the other side. You don't mill around. There may be more to it than that. I wouldn't be at all surprised, but I don't know what it is. 16, I want to spend a couple minutes here. Let's says the Lord God. If the prince makes a gift 
to any of his sons as his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. So remember the king gets a swath of land that's pretty fair size. Then the question becomes, what happens to that? And what it says, thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, it shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. So the king can give of his property to his own sons. If he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance. It shall belong to his sons. So if the prince has got a favorite servant that he wants to honor, he can give him a chunk of that land, but the land reverts back to the royal family at the Jubilee. Prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from this property. So then the other thing we have while we're at it is we've also got kitchens. This is where the priests cook their portion of the offering. And it says, verse 19, Then he brought me through the entrance, which is at the side of the gate, to the north row of the holy chambers of the priests. And behold, a place was there at the extreme western end of them. And he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offering and the sin offering, and where they shall bake the grain offering, in order not to bring them out into the outer court, and so communicate holiness to the people. That's an awkward turn of phrase. Communicate holiness to the people sounds like a good thing. And that's not what's being talked about here. The regulations for eating the priest's stuff is that the priests alone get to eat it. So what he's saying here is this thing is set up with connecting areas. So the priests do not have to take their priest chow out into the common people and have it defiled. Once it's been sacrificed, its sole use then is to feed priests. And so if a commoner then handles it, deals with it, touches it, or any of those kinds of things, it would become defiled. Then he brought me to the outer court and led me around to the four corners of the court. And behold, at each corner of the court, there was another court. And so what you've got is kitchens where the people cook their sacrifices. Because remember, if you come with a peace offering and so forth, it's a barbecue before the Lord. And it's designed so that one person cannot eat it by himself. So what you do is you bring all your friends with you and you do this sacrifice. The priest gets his portion and that goes back into this kitchen to be cooked. And the rest of it, which is allowed for you and your friends to eat, goes to one of these four kitchens where you can prepare it so that you can eat it with your friends. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was flowing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south into the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out of, by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side from west to east. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits. All right, a thousand cubits is basically 500 yards, which is a little more than a quarter of a mile. Measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. And he measured a thousand cubits and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. And he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. So by the time it is a mile from the temple, it is waist deep. 
Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? And he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees, on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, The water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arba. This would be the Arba, which is this chunk of the Jordan Valley above the Dead Sea. This water flows toward the eastern region and enters down into the Arba and enters the sea. The sea that he's talking about here is the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swims will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Ineglam. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Fish will be of very many kinds like the fish of the Great Sea. So the Great Sea is the Mediterranean. So what he's saying is the Dead Sea will become like the Mediterranean for fish. And of course, everybody knows that nothing lives in the Dead Sea now. I mean, there's some little one-celled organism kinds of things, but basically nothing lives there. And it has been that way, as far as we know, since Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the lowest spot on earth, and it's also speculated that this is where Sodom and Gomorrah were. And that all used to be lush, fertile pasture land, which is why Lot picked it. Lot, remember, was standing up on top of the mountain here with Abraham. And Lot looked down at that and said, I want that. So this was prime pasture land before God whacked Sodom and Gomorrah. And ever since then, it has been dead. And so what this is saying is that that water will now live and it will produce abundant teeming fish. Its fish will be very many kinds, like the fish of the Great Sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They shall be left for salt. And on the banks of both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now, we'll put a bookmark there. And what we want to now do is go to Zechariah 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights in a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from west to east by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost, and there shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but an evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, 
half of them to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. So what he's saying here is it'll flow out and half of it will go this way and half of it will go that way. And what Ezekiel is doing is he is just seeing the eastward flowing branch of this. But it's the same thing. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and his name one. I find that a fascinating construct. The Lord will be one and his name one. What do you suppose that might be referring to? I think what's going to happen is you've got two branches at least of the kingdom of God right now. One branch, which we know as the Jews, insists that the only name for God is Jehovah. The Son and the Holy Spirit are not God. You have the other branch, which is Christians, who say God is one being and three persons, the Trinitarian concept. And what this sounds like to me is when God puts it all back together, it's going to be one name. So the next place we want to go is Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The thing to understand is ever since the garden, it has been God's desire to dwell among his people. And when we developed hearts of stone, it was no longer possible for him to dwell among us. And the reason that it was no longer possible for him to dwell among us was we couldn't survive it. So what you see in the entire scripture is what I call a dance. And it starts with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. The question is, how is a holy God going to live among this people without destroying them all? That's the whole story of the book of Exodus. And the answer that they come up with is this mobile tabernacle, which I call a God containment vessel. It's shielding, if you will, to keep God from destroying the people he is traveling amongst. And you've got very special procedures with technicians who know how to go into the presence of God and how to handle this thing so that they don't get killed. And when one of them makes a mistake, he gets killed. So the next phase of the operation was God came as his son and was able then to dwell with us for a period. And then he came as the Holy Spirit and was again able to dwell with us for a period. But there's still some distance. So what's happening now when the New Jerusalem comes down is finally God has moved us to the place where we can stand to have him be in our midst. And if we assume, which I do, that God has not changed, we must have. There's been several thousand years, almost 6,000 so far, where humanity has been changed. And the idea is we are to be moving as a race, if you will, in the direction of being able to have God live in our midst. That's the goal. That's the object of the exercise. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So he goes on to describe the gates, and we'll see those again in Ezekiel. You've got three gates, each of which are named for one of the tribes of Israel. And you have got 12 pillars, each of which is named for one of the apostles. And you've got the size of this guy, which is huge. It's about 1,300 miles on a side, and it's a cube. So it's huge. Then I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, and so forth. Then an angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river. The tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. Does that sound like what we just read in Ezekiel? The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Leaves are for healing. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So what Ezekiel is describing is not this. This one's too big. It's a model of this. Just like the tabernacle was a model of the throne room of God, so this millennial temple that we're seeing is a tinker toy model of which this is the original. Then we have the division of the land, and I'm not going to go through that, but what I want to draw your attention to is verse 21. You shall divide the land among you according to the tribes of Israel, period. You shall not allot it as an inheritance for yourselves, and for the sojourners who reside among you, and have children among you, they shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. Everybody see what we just said there? So you shall divide the land among you according to the tribes of Israel. You shall allot it as an inheritance for yourselves and for the sojourners who reside among you and have had children among you. So if you have people who are grafted into the nation Israel, they inherit just like the native-born. They shall be to you as native-born children of Israel. With you they shall be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. In whatever tribe the sojourner resides, there you shall assign him his inheritance, declares the Lord God. All right, so then we have the names of the tribes. And again, we've got the division of the territory. And this is where you have the differentiation between the sons of Zadok and the rest of the Levites. So adjoining the territory of Judah from the east side to the west shall be the portion which you set apart 25 cubits in breadth and on length equal to one of the tribal portions with the sanctuary in the midst of it. Verse 9. The portion that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 2,500 cubits of length and 20,000 cubits in breadth. These shall be the allotments of the holy portion. The priest shall have an allotment measuring 2,500 cubits on the north side, 10,000 cubits on the breadth, on the western side, 10,000 in breadth on the eastern side, and 25,000 in length. The southern side with the sanctuary of the Lord in the midst of it. This shall be for the consecrated priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge, who did not go astray when the people of Israel went astray as the Levites did. 
and it shall belong to them as a special portion with the holy portion of the land, a most holy place adjoining the territory of the Levites. And alongside the territory of the priests, the Levites will have an allotment, 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in breadth, whose length shall be 25,000 cubits, and the breadth 20,000. They shall not sell or exchange any of it. They shall not alienate this choice portion of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. So what you're seeing here is you've got the 500 square, which is the temple. Then you've got a chunk around it that belongs to the sons of Zadok. Then you've got a chunk that belongs to all the rest of the Levites. The rest of it belongs to the prince. Oh, I'm sorry, no, we also have Jerusalem in there, the city. You've got a chunk that belongs to the city. So anyway, I'm not going to go through the rest of the thousands of cubits here. So now I want to come down to verse 30, and, and that will finish us up. These shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Reuben, the gate of Judah, and the gate of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, the gate of Dan. What are these gates to? Millennial Jerusalem, which is 4,500 cubits on a side. So it's a mile and a half on each side. This is Millennial Jerusalem, which contains, I am assuming, the holy place. And you've got then 12 gates, three on each side. So this becomes then, if you will, a tinker toy model of the new Jerusalem, which is way bigger, about 1,300 times bigger. The circumference of the city shall be 1,800 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. It's one of the compound names of God. The very last verse in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48, 35.